Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Lisa Britton about her paper, Cultivating the Ethical Repertoires of Behavior Analyst, Prevention of Common Violations. Dr. Britton's current interests revolve around the delivery of quality supervision for trainees completing their fieldwork experience, supporting BCBAs who are building their skills as supervisors, and the ethics within the field of behavior analysis. Dr. Britton obtained her bachelor's degree from the University of North Dakota. She then completed her graduate training at the University of Nevada, Reno, under the direction of Jim Carr. After completing her degrees, Dr. Britton worked for Spectrum Center Schools and Programs for over 15 years, where she focused on supporting the senior behavior analysts who provided behavioral supports to students with special education needs in their educational environment. In 2015, Dr. Britton launched Britton Behavioral Consulting, a company designed to provide fieldwork supervision for people working to become BCBAs or BCABAs. Her primary focus is on the delivery of remote supervision for those who are unable to obtain quality supervision in their immediate community. In the spring of 2019, Lisa co-authored a book on the topic of remote supervision with the Behavioral Observations host, Matt Sicoria. Lisa is the current Professional Standards Chair for the California Association of Behavior Analysis, where she supports their mission to provide quality continuing education opportunities for their members. Without further ado, here's my interview with Lisa Britton. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Thank you for having me today. We're so fortunate to have you joining us and to talk about your paper, which I'm so excited to dive into. There's so much to unpack there. But before we get really into the content of the specific paper, we love hearing about our guest's background and sort of what led them to this particular research topic. And so could you share some of that information with us? I would love to. So um, I've been a BCBA since the year 2000. So I'm a bit of a dinosaur um, within the field. And um, I've been doing a lot of work related to functional behavior assessments, training people on how to implement those assessments and um, how to work with individuals with some pretty severe behaviors. Um, I, during that time, I was doing a lot of supervision and really enjoyed the supervision that I was doing. And so in 2015, I launched um, Britain Behavioral Consulting, which is designed to provide fieldwork supervision for those who need it. Um, since then, I've been continuing to do that supervision and also starting to mentor people who are um, new to supervision and with, are looking for that support. Um, during my time, I've been teaching ethics courses as well and developing ethics courses. And so I've become pretty passionate about uh, both supervision and ethics within the field of behavior analysis. And that sort of makes sense. If you were to put ethics and supervision together, I think you have a, a good segue into this paper and this topic. Is that what brought you to doing something like this? Um, yes, it, it is. Um, you know, when, when we think about um, the supervision practices, there are a lot of um, areas where we can get ourselves into trouble mm. inadvertently. And um, so there's, there's definitely uh, 
a crosswalk between those two in terms of um, the importance of modeling good ethical behavior for, um, as a supervisor and making sure that we're covering all of our bases in terms of ethics. Right. And your paper specifically focuses on cultivating those ethical repertoires. Can you paint a picture for us as to why that's particularly important when, when training or, or teaching behavior analysts? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think when, when we have a budding behavior analyst coming up in the field, it's going to be really critical for the supervisor and those people around that person, you know, certainly their instructors as well, to really um, foster that skill of how to be an ethical behavior analyst um, within, within the work that they're doing. And um, quite honestly, when you think about um, the contingencies that are in place in the natural environment, oftentimes those contingencies actually work against us behaving in an ethical way. Mm -hmm. And so we have to um, really focus on how it is that we are going to maintain those ethical repertoires despite these con competing contingencies that may be in place. That makes a lot of sense. And in your paper, in your introduction, you talk about some of the, the primary ethical violations that the BACB reported in there. I believe it was a 2016 white paper, no, 2018 white paper, right? Correct. Can you talk about why you decided to dial in on those partic uh, particular three ethical violations? Was it just because they were the most common? Why dial into those in particular? Oh, that's a, a fantastic question. And to be honest, our first manuscript that we submitted um, did not have this focus. Hmm. And um, we received some fantastic feedback from um, the reviewers, uh, as well as the associate editor in terms of, well, you know, this, this manuscript has some good components to it, but um, it's just a little bit too broad and maybe we should be drilling down on some specific areas. And luckily for us, um, reviewer two, as well as um, again, the associate editor gave us some excellent feedback in terms of, you know, hey, you, you make reference to this um, white paper in your introduction. Why don't you really, you know, drill down into some of those areas and talk about how you, uh, how one can prevent uh, those issues from happening in the first place. And so um, that really was the framework from which we you know, completely revamped that manuscript to focus on those areas. Was the original manuscript broader in scope? Was it looking sort of at the entire ethics code or much of the ethics code? Um, it wasn't quite that broad, but it, it really did look at um, ethics um, from the perspective of the practitioner, the student, the um, faculty member, and so forth. And so um, it, it probably, um, those could probably be three different manuscripts, quite honestly. All right. Yeah, I mean, I felt even reading this paper, I mean, it was extremely well structured and, and easy to read, but there's just so many important messages and, and there's so much helpful content that it even even this paper felt like it could really be broken up if, if necessary it's mm -hmm. there's a lot of bang for the buck in, in this paper I think there's just so much useful content there for for the listeners who may not be familiar with the sort of the big three ethical violations that you look at in this paper could you could you explain those Sure. Um, specifically what the um, white paper that the BACB um, uh, introduced in 2018 really looked at, um, here are these big bucket areas that where people are really struggling um, with um, engaging in ethical behavior. And those were related to improper supervision practices, um, appropriate reporting to the BACB as necessary, and areas around professionalism and integrity. In your paper, it looks like you break the three big ethical concerns actually into four categories to sort of set the structure of your paper. Can you tell us why you, you broke the, the three ethical violations in, into four categories rather than just three? Absolutely. So um, 
you, you'll notice when you look at the paper that uh, there's a heavy emphasis on supervision, probably in part because of uh, my interest in that area, but also because I think it is such a challenging area related to um, ethical concerns. And so what we wanted to do within the paper was to take a look at um, the supervisor, him or herself, but also take a look at um, the organization and how an organization can support the supervisors within the organization to um, be as effective as possible. So you sort of broke supervision into two components because the, the topic is so robust and then the subsequent two sections or the last two sections would have been the failure to report and respond to the BACB as required and the professionalism and integrity piece, right? Exactly. So I, as, as we were talking about at the beginning of this interview, I think there's so much to unpack in this paper. Um, I, as a host, I'm going to hopefully cover as much as possible that we'll, we'll go through as much as possible. But I do strongly encourage the listeners to check out this paper. There are just so many good nuggets of information embedded within these. And so we'll sort of talk about each of these individual topics somewhat broadly and dive as deep as we can uh, given our time constraints. So to start with the first section, looking at improper or inadequate supervision and delegation, I don't typically like to read quotes on this podcast. For one thing, I don't love publicly reading. Yeah, and it can also be a little dry, but your first sentence of this section, I think is really said very beautifully. And I think it paints the picture for the rest of the section very well. So I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna directly quote what you say here. So you say, quote, supervision within the field of behavior analysis is much more challenging than it appears if one is to do it well and within the bounds of the BACB code. I think that exemplifies what we're about to talk about uh, in much more detail throughout this section, but simply saying supervision is a bit more difficult than we have a tendency uh, of realizing when, when you're new to, to supervising. So could you talk a little bit about this section, what it means to look at uh, appropriate and adequate supervision and delegation, sort of introduce us to this concept here. Sure, um, I, and I appreciate the fact that you um, felt that that captured what it was that we were looking for here. You know, as, as somebody who has done a lot of supervision, um, I've found that it takes a lot of organization skills to be able to really um, function well within that format. And there are definitely areas that we um, need to have some maybe self-reflection on in terms of our skill sets to determine whether or not it's appropriate for us to be providing supervision. And so what we really wanted to capture here was that, um, for example, um, one of the things that we need to evaluate is um, our scope of competence. And do we have the skills to supervise this particular person in the area in which they currently work. And that requires a lot of um, self-reflection in terms of not only did I receive the initial training in that area, but also um, have I kept up to date in terms of the current research within that area? And yeah, I know that Broadhead and his colleagues talk a lot about um, scope of competence and the importance of that. And so uh, we tried to highlight some of that information within that section. But in addition to having the, the knowledge of that particular area, we also need to evaluate, do we have um, the skills as a, an actual supervisor? So do we have a clear understanding of behavioral skills training and all that that encompasses? Do we have the time to be able to implement behavioral skills training in a meaningful way? Or are we just talking about a topic and then moving on to the next topic and so forth? So we really need to make sure that we are utilizing evidence-based practices within our supervision practices. I love in, in your paper and in your explanation the elaboration that competency doesn't is not just can you potentially supervise, right? It's multifaceted. 
-hmm. You have to be able to have the supervision skills. You have to have cultivated supervision skills. You have to be competent in the area that you're supervising and you have to be able to use evidence-based supervision strategies. And as you lay out in the paper, a lot of consideration around competency, you say, is, is one of the things you need to do upfront when even deciding whether you should be a supervisor or not. Are there other variables or other things to consider when deciding when to supervise? Mm. That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, obviously um, time constraints is going to be a, a relevant factor. So what is your caseload in terms of the number of people that you're currently supervising? Mm. And in addition to that, what other job responsibilities do you actually have? And so it may be the case where um, because of other job responsibilities, uh, you know, somebody might not have the capacity to even supervise one person, whereas another person is able to um, supervise several people because that's their main area of focus. In the paper, you say supervision is not merely setting up like a, a meeting per week or, or whatever. So for supervisors or people who are considering to become a supervisor, how can they begin to evaluate what the time commitment would be to be an effective supervisor? Hmm. Um, I would say that a lot of the work is happening on the front end, but then ongoing. And so um, I think we talk about within this paper, and I feel very passionately about the importance of having a scope and sequence for supervision, that you have a roadmap of where you're going in terms of content and, and how that content is going to be delivered to your um, trainees. Um, in addition, uh, there's a lot of interactions that are going to occur between meetings. And so that is going to be through communication via email or phone calls um, where something might come up in between those meetings that are, is you know, really critical and needs to be addressed in a timely manner. Um, it's also uh, having the opportunity to review people's um, documents and report writing skills um, that oftentimes maybe gets um, pushed to the side when we're thinking about, oh, I need to get my um, client observation in for the month or something like that. Um, and so there are just so many facets in terms of the skills that need to be cultivated um, within that trainee. Do you think that the fieldwork supervision requirements provided by the BACB that say that supervision is required for 10% of the hours the supervisee is completing, do you think that that is a helpful guide for supervisors who are considering, people who are considering going into supervision to decide, oh, you know, if, it, if they're doing 30 hours a week, I need to do 10%, so I really only need three hours. Do you think that that's, that's useful and that's accurate? Um, so that's, that's a really great question. And um, to clarify, uh, you know, the current um, requirements, if it's field work, it's 5%. If it's practicum, it's 7.5%. And if it's intensive practicum, it's 10%. And then we're going to be shifting into a 5% or 10% model in 2022, which is right around the corner. You know, I think that, um, I think that that's a fantastic guideline. Um, and Quite honestly, um, I think that the importance of the amount of time that is spent in supervision is going to vary based off of the skill set of the individual that you're working with and um, what they bring to the table in terms of their learning history. So I've supervised people who, um, quite honestly, um, probably didn't need that five to 10% of supervision because of their learning history. They came to me with amazing skills that um, I was able to really just um, build on and, um, you know, hopefully make those skills even better. Um, and then there's going to be other people who are um, relatively new to the field, um, haven't had the same learning opportunities, and they're really going to need more support in order to be um, effective. And I've had people who have made the decision to um, 
after accumulating their hours that that were necessary to sit for the exam have made the decision to continue to receive supervision um, past that because they uh, felt like they needed that additional guidance and support. And that's fantastic when people are able to identify that need and reach out for that extra support. Absolutely. When you're, when, a, when someone who's interested in supervising thinks about the competency piece, thinks about the time commitment piece, one of the other components you describe as being necessary to think about is delegation and being able to balance the, the, the idea of teaching a skill and assigning someone to do something. Can you talk about some of the nuances within, within delegation? Delegation is a tricky thing because um, it, the reality is that we need to get that trainee to be able to perform independently by the time we're done with supervision because that's what they're expected to do. And so I can't um, hold their hand, so to speak, um, every step along the way uh, because eventually I need to be able to fade out of the equation. So then the... Um, the point of focus needs to be on um, at what point do we start fading back? And the advantage of using behavioral skills training and ongoing assessments of performance is that should be telling us the point at which we can fade back and have greater levels of independence and somebody is able to perform in a competent way at that point. But if we fade back too quickly, now we have somebody who is potentially performing outside of their scope of competence and that goes against what we want us to, we want them to be doing. Right. And as you mentioned a few times in the interview and and you describe in the paper, one of the critical skills needed for any supervisor is the ability to deliver behavioral skills training. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what behavioral skills training is for, for listeners who may not be familiar? Sure. So I like to talk about behavioral skills training from um, Parsons and her colleagues. They, um, they had a paper that came out in 2012 that really outlined a six-step process for behavioral skills training. And what they talked about within that paper was um, we need to um, describe what the behavior is. We also need to have a written description that they can reference at a later time. Um, that that behavior, that written description should also be brief and succinct, and mm. we're not always very good at doing that. Um, we then need to model the skill that we want the individual to perform. Then they need to rehearse it, and we provide performance feedback. We continue those steps until they reach a level of competency. And so I think that oftentimes what gets missed is that final piece of we continue that rehearsal and performance feedback process until the individual reaches a predetermined um, level of competency. And we know that they have that skill to the level that we want them to. That's helpful. And in your paper, you talk about some, some strategies that may be necessary, both, I suppose, before and potentially throughout behavioral skills training to set behavioral skills training up for success. For instance, you talk about the need to assess a supervisee's skill at the very least at the beginning and, and again, potentially throughout. Could you speak about what it means to assess skills and how someone would go about assessing particular skills? Sure. So. Um... If we have a particular skill that we know we want a trainee to be able to perform, we need to develop some type of uh, rubric or treatment integrity type of checklist, something like that to assess the person with. And once we have that that rubric in place, then we can take a look at a sample of their performance and assess um, how are they performing in those key areas. And then based off of that, we know what, what, what type of instruction we still need to provide in order to get their skills to the level that we want them to be at. Um, and then we can continue that process. And by having that assessment approach, it's just like working with um, 
our, our clients that we may be working with, where we don't want to um, start teaching without assessing first, um, because somebody may already have a skill within their repertoire, and we're um, not needing to focus on that particular area, and we would be more efficient by focusing on other areas. Is the task list, either the fourth or fifth edition, depending on, on which uh, when when the when the when the supervisee is going to be finishing uh, their supervision, is that sufficient to sort of look at your supervisees and go, do they have this skill, this skill, this skill, or do you need something a little bit more detailed or, or systematic to to look at their baseline skills? That's a great question. I would say that it, it's going to be unique to that person's um, learn, current working environment and their goals um, once they finish their supervision. So if somebody is working with um, say, teens with emotional behavioral disorders, it really probably doesn't make much sense to spend too much time teaching them about discrete trial teaching. They need to know about that um, on some level and probably should practice that a little bit, but I'm not going to you know, focus on that particular area um, to get to a high degree of competence uh, because they're probably not gonna be using that um, within their, their clientele. However, um, developing um, a systematic process for functional behavior assessments that are tailored to um, somebody with an emotional behavioral disorder and developing behavior interventions that are going to be effective with that population is going to be really a critical skill for them to focus on. That makes sense. So do you think that supervisors need to basically task analyze all of the specific interventions and assessments and, and all the other type of work that they do within their particular setting, task analyze the, those procedures and then use that as a sort of baseline assessment for their supervisees to know where they stand in those particular areas? Yeah, I think that would make a lot of sense. And, and obviously we're going to be prioritizing those areas that are going to be necessary for that particular environment um, in order for them to be a su successful BCBA once they meet their requirements and pass the test. And then from an organizational standpoint to somewhat segue into the next section of the paper, what can organizations do to support some of these supervision nuances or complications that, that, that people need to consider? Um, great question. So um, my um, co-author, Amy Cry, really focused in on this area, and she uh, works for an organization that uh, is supporting a lot of supervisors. And so she had um, a, a lot to say about this particular topic. Um, I think that there are many key areas that uh, an organization um, will want to do in order to support their supervisors and thereby supporting the trainees that they are supervising. So um, some big areas is um, obviously um, a supervisor needs to be uh, competent in the skill that they are going to be uh, teaching people about. And so the organization has a responsibility to ensure that that person does have that skill set. Um, they also need to um, again, have those skills on how to be an effective supervisor. Do they know the steps that they need to be able to take um, in order to build the skill set of that trainee in an effective way? Um, and do they have the right disposition? And so we may have somebody who is a great implementer. They know how to supervise but maybe um, they're not modeling that appropriate um, professional demeanor or the way that they deliver feedback is um, not well received. And so uh, the organization may be in a, a situation where they need to support that person in um, those areas of professionalism and the delivery of, of appropriate feedback. So are these specific skills that the organization should actively assess and, and how would they go about assessing these skills? 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think we're talking about um, building some uh, systems in place in order to be able to do that. And certainly having somebody who is able to um, provide that assessment and evaluation and um, mentor those BCBAs who maybe need a little bit more support in certain areas so that they can ultimately be an effective supervisor. Because the reality is that pretty much every BCBA is going to be supervising somebody, maybe not um, through fieldwork supervision, but maybe through RBT supervision. And so um, there these are skills that somebody is going to need regardless of their role within that organization. I liked your suggestion in the paper that organizations should consider setting up a mentor for the very least the first year and, and potentially beyond the first year is until the, until the supervisor ends up cultivating the, the skills necessary to be an effective supervisor. And you also mentioned that organizations should consider doing periodic competency checks. Could you, could you speak to that idea? Sure. Um, well, we know that behavioral drift is a phenomenon that definitely occurs. And we may be in a situation where somebody um, knows about behavioral skills training, they're able to implement it, but maybe um, other um, factors of their job are um, weighing on them or um, they lose their focus in terms of implementing all of the aspects of that, um, that training. And so we need to catch that when that happens. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't sufficient to know that, um, that somebody has that skill at one point in time, but does that skill maintain over time? Right. And that includes as you described, supervision skills, right? Do they have the ability to supervise certain things and checking that skill over time? Exactly. To switch gears and to look at the next ethical area of concern that you brought up, which is the failure to report and respond to the BACB. Can you talk a little bit about what that issue is in the first place? Sure. So uh, I think that um, sometimes it gets a little tricky for folks to know what it is that they are supposed to communicate to the BACB and within what timeline they're supposed to um, communicate that. And so that could be something as, as sim simple as um, an email or address change, but it might be something more significant like... Um, a DUI arrest or something like that. And um, the expectation is that we are uh, providing that kind of information to um, the board within 30 days. And within those guidelines, I think some, some BCBAs struggle with what is my private information that is not related to, to my work as a behavior analyst and, and potentially therefore should be reported and what is not. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions as to how people can think about this particular ethics code and how they can sort of problem solve some of those, those issues? Certainly. Um, anything that has the potential of impacting the safety of clients or your ability to um, implement interventions with your clients is going to be something that is reportable. Mm -hmm. And if anyone has any questions, you know, the BACB is the resource to go to, to find out um, this particular situation has occurred. Is this something that, uh, that I should be reporting and get that information um, directly from the board to be able to ensure that they are following all of the requirements set forth by the board. Yeah, you mentioned in the paper that there's a lot of good clarifying information in the BACB newsletters that are available on the BACB's website, of course. And then you also reference a visual chart within the, the ethics page on the, the BACB website that it sounds like will help people identify when there may be something that they need to report. Exactly. And um, the the 
board has done so much around um, really providing us with guidance related to ethical issues and um, tools for us to be able to utilize in order to really um, assess things to the level that we need to as to, is this something that is reportable? At what point does it become something that is reportable and what, what are our responsibilities um, to, to the board? The, the next section of your paper looked at professionalism and integrity, which to me sort of feels like a very broad category. Integrity seems to be maybe like an, uh, an umbrella or sort of fully encompassing term. So could you begin to, to speak about what professionalism and integrity is within behavior analysis? Sure. So um, when I think about, uh, you know, professionalism and integrity, I think that you're, you're right. I think that those are very broad types of categories and, you know, how do we operationally define those concepts? And uh, I think that some of the things that we, we're looking for here is, um, are we honest? You know, and that can be something as simple as, um, you know, am I... Um, accurately reporting um, the fieldwork hours that I'm putting on my chart? Is that the, the work that I've honestly done? Mm. Or um, uh, am I honest in terms of my billing codes mm. and how I'm billing for things? And so uh, I think that can come up in a variety of different ways. And, and I agree. And what we talk about within that section is that the integrity piece I think it's oftentimes tied to other areas. So for example, if I am um, asking somebody to do something that they're not competent to do as a trainee, um, I am now putting that person in a situation where they're violating the code mm. from their perspective. So that's an issue in terms of my integrity as um, somebody who is asking somebody to do something that they're not prepared to do. Right. And you separate within the paper, you separate integrity and professionalism, sort of breaking professionalism into professional and scientific relationships. Could you speak a little bit about the professionalism? Sure. Um, you know, when we think about um, professionalism and our, um, you know, appropriate relationships, that is things like um, really focusing on, you know, making sure that we don't have multiple relationships, making sure that um, the way that we are communicating on um, social media is appropriate, uh, and, and things like that. You also talk about promoting an ethical culture. Can you describe that? Sure. So again, when we think about um, the natural contingencies that are oftentimes uh, in place for us, um, they oftentimes are going to compete with behaving in an ethical way. And so we need to actively put in a culture that is going to um, be reinforcing um, the ethical behavior of the people within that environment. And so that can be things like um, setting, setting up the environment so that um, all people are receptive to receiving feedback um, in the event that uh, their behavior may appear um, to be in, in the, a gray area, let's mm. say. Uh, so in other words, um, as a, a supervisor, I should be just as open to hearing that kind of feedback as my trainee is, that that is um, a, a bi-directional type of relationship where um, everybody within the organization is going to be receptive to those type of messages and responding appropriately when, when that occurs. I imagine the, that a supervisor receiving feedback not only gives them information about their own performance, but it probably also gives them an opportunity to model receiving feedback, which is a critical skill for any professional. 
Absolutely. And um, I know uh, Linda LeBlanc and her colleagues came out with a book recently about um, the supervision relationship. And I, I think that they have um, just a whole host of great information uh, in terms of uh, how to be receptive to that feedback and how to build um, a supervision relationship that is going to cultivate um, those type of interactions. Yeah, that's a great book. Great reference. We'll be sure to, to link to that one in the show notes. I think the, the listeners will be interested in that. The sort of final section within this, this category that you talked about is ethical violations by others and risk of harm. Can you, can you describe that? Sure. So this is, um, you know, when the situation where we need to, um, make the decision as to whether or not we are going to um, report an ethical violation or a potential ethical violation of others um, to the board. And mm. um, the board provides some um, pretty good guidance for us. And again, some tools within um, the website to be able to reference to use as kind of a deci decision tree as to um, what are the actions that we should be taking. And what, what um, we really talk about here is that, um, you know, if there's gross negligence, something where there is a risk of harm, um, again, inappropriate billing uh, practices, things like that. That might be something where we're going to uh, make the decision to immediately report that to the board because um, there is a high level of risk to the client and a high level of risk to the field as, as a whole. Um, but more often than not, there are going to be these um, gray areas where um, our, our first step is really to approach that person, have a conversation with them about our concerns, and then hearing from them um, their perspective, and then having a process to make sure that, um, that either that concern upon that conversation really kind of resolves itself, or that we give that person an opportunity to address those concerns, and then we follow up to make sure that um, those concerns have been addressed adequately. I find that people new to the field of behavior analysis, people being supervised uh, for their hours to become a behavior analyst or graduate students, seem to, at least in my experience, struggle with, the, with that sort of gray area. And, and maybe, honestly, not even the gray area, but it seems like a lot of people who are learning ethics for the first time have a pretty sensitive trigger finger and that, oh, th they did this one thing, I'm reporting it to the BACB. And it's like, okay, well, maybe, have you talked to them? Is this potentially something that could be solved through informal resolution? Do you have any other suggestions or considerations around how to sparse out when, when you should go straight to the BACB versus go through informal resolution? Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think that's probably something that we should, as supervisors, be incorporating in um, within the context of uh, that fieldwork experience. Um, I think that you're right that oftentimes, unfortunately, we can um, receive training that is uh, rather black and white and um, doesn't necessarily take into account the nuances that um, that we experience in the natural environment. Mm. And so I, I think it's it can be challenging to um, apply the um, the code to um, to those experiences and to know exactly how to proceed. Right. And I think it can be difficult to really even give people all well, I guess it depends on your setting, but I imagine for a lot of supervisors, it can be difficult to create a lot of training opportunities around dealing with ethical violations. At least I hope <laughs> that it can be, uh, they're relatively few and far between, so therefore difficult to create a lot of training opportunities. When I was a, primarily a supervisor, that was one of my, one of the things I'd like to do most in group supervision was bringing out the ethical dilemmas and of course protecting all information, but utilizing that as a time to give people a feel for 
for common ethical dilemmas that their teammates were experiencing and, and how we went about solving those. I think that's a great format to um, be able to work on some of those things. And I, I think you're absolutely right that there are going to be certain, certain um, dilemmas that everyone is going to come in contact with. You know, we still have um, our current code into a, in effect until um, the start of the new year. And so, you know, receiving gifts is still <laughs> going to be a topic that comes up during All the right. holidays this year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, how to deal with that. Yeah. So I suppose those are going to be much more commonly experienced versus, you know, hopefully some of the, the more severe uh, ethics code violations people may not have as much familiar with. Right. I think it's also helpful as a supervisor to um, model uh, what that person is going to say. Um, I worked with one individual who we, we were talking about um, an ethical dilemma that was, again, re related to um, what seemed to be some um, inappropriate billing practices that um, somebody was asking him to do. And he was like, this just doesn't seem right. And I'm like, bingo, you're right. <laughs> and, he, and I was like, you're going to have to talk to that person about what they're asking you to do. And he's like, I don't even know how to start that conversation. And I'm like, okay, let, let's, let, let me model what I would say. Then you can practice what you're going to say to me. And let's just kind of play this out and see how it goes. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I love a lot of the recommendations I see related to dealing with ethical dilemmas for, for BCBAs is reach out to someone who has more experience in this area and, and perhaps having those, having those mock conversations uh, through appropriate consultation where as a, someone with more experience, you may be saying, okay, well, why don't you, you know, act like you're approaching me about this particular situation. I'll pretend to be the other person and role play to, to hopefully make people feel a little bit more comfortable because it is quite awkward and difficult. And in those first few times that you're bringing up difficult, awkward, potentially ethical violation situations, I, I, you know, I think many of us have all experienced that, but getting to practice of having those conversations, I think is critical. Absolutely. And I think it's, it, it's, it can be really challenging because um, uh, obviously the, there's going to be a lot of um, negative reinforcement working against mm. providing, having that conversation to, in, to even begin with. And if you do have that conversation and um, the person becomes defensive or whatever the case may be, that can be really challenging. Um, and so it, it practicing and role-playing is going to be a critical um, aspect of that so that we can, again, compete against those natural contingencies that are present. So to sort of loop into a, a point made earlier about some of the prerequisite skills for supervision, do you think that a required skill for supervisors to, to be able to deem themselves competent for supervision would be problem solving and addressing ethical concerns? I, I couldn't agree more with that statement. Yeah, I, I, we didn't, I don't think we talked about that within the paper itself, but I think that is going to be a, a factor. I mean, we think about um, problem solving, um, the problem, problem solving skills of a supervisor, oftentimes in terms of um, clinical problem solving, we have this case, what are we gonna do? Um, but it, it definitely extends beyond that. Right. And so maybe to incorporate that idea even more broadly into the rest of the paper, that may be a consideration for organizations when they're looking at the skills of the supervisors, right? Do they have the clinical skills? Do they have supervision skills? Do they have some demonstrated level of mastery or understanding of the ethics code and, and ultimately how to solve or address some of the ethical concerns? Great point. Are there any important points within the paper that we missed that you that you want the listeners to know about? Not that I can think of. I mean, I think you really um, delved into those uh, big areas and, and we were able to drill down nicely into those different topics. 
for, for people interested in this topic, do you have recommendations for other articles or books or any resources that they should check out? Well, we certainly already highlighted um, the, the scores of, re of resources that are available on the BACB um, website. Um, and uh, of course the Bailey and Birch book is um, the go-to and um, is used very often. But I think that there are some other resources that I know I relied on when um, we were working on this paper. Um, so that would include um, the book that Broadhead and his colleagues wrote in 2018. Um, and that's specifically around um, ethical practices related to providing services to individuals with autism. Um, I also think that um, Fong and her colleagues, um, they had a great paper out there um, related to cultural awareness skills mm. and cultivating that, which I think is really critical. Um, also O'Leary and his colleagues related to um, the ethical implications of um, related to social media. I think that's a critical area that we need to focus on. And to kind of piggyback on what we were talking about related to um, uh, ethical problem solving, um, Rosenberg and Schwartz have um, a nice article related to that particular topic so that we can really start to um, build that skill set for individuals. That's um, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for those resources. I think that's going to be really helpful for people interested in the topic. I also noticed in your paper, you seem to reference a great deal of the papers published in the special issue and supervision that the BAT put out a few years ago. Absolutely, yeah. That's, that um, special issue definitely, it has uh, lots of great resources. So perhaps people interested, uh, I suppose, in the supervision piece in particular, may be interested in, in that special issue. Any other recommendations? Um, I think that that um, special issue is, is definitely an area to focus on. Also, I would say Garza and colleagues from 2018 um, also provides some resources related to um, supervision. Awesome. Well, this gives us a lot to think about. I think the paper was really helpful in, in not only looking at major ethical concerns that we experience as a field, but also how to, um, how to evaluate those particular issues and set up proactive sort of interventions to prevent them from occurring in practice. So thank you and your colleagues for for putting this together. It's a phenomenal resource for us. Well, thank you so much. And we're just so pleased that um, you guys felt that it was interesting enough to um, devote a podcast to it. All right, before you go far, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Links are available in the show notes. I'd also like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice of the Journal. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin and my production assistant for this episode, Tatiana Pilar. Thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>